When it's cold outside, thanks to Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin, you'll be warm and toasty inside. Right now, put no money down, no payments, and no interest for up to two years at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Visit PellaWI.com today. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the WTMJ Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. I know today is the football trade deadline. Mike Spalding and I figured it out yesterday. I think that... um, I, candidly, I think I would I would be happier if the Packers were sellers this year because I just don't think that they're going to win the Super Bowl, and I think that they're more than one player away. So you have to either be buyers, sellers, or stand pat. And if the idea is to get to the Super Bowl and you recognize they're just flat not good enough to get to the Super Bowl this year, maybe it, it's best to say, okay, we, we need to figure out what we need to get back to the Super Bowl next year, and maybe whether it's draft whether it's draft picks or something else, we'll just move in that direction. So, I mean, time will tell when we see what they end up doing, and if anything at all, if history is an indication, don't expect any sort of big moves. And I'm not sure that there's any players out there right now that would make for a big move. All right, the elections coming up a week from today. And, you know, we'll be talking a lot about that over the course of the, the last, the next, you know, few days as as we get into the the, the real crunch time of this one of the arguments and claims, and there's, there's a lot of stuff that's out there, and some is true, and some stuff are half-truths, and some stuff are just completely and totally cheap shots. I think one of the ultimate cheap shots in this election season, Wisconsin elections, has been the, the attack on Republican gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels for the fact that the company that his family owns has, over a 20-year period— had a handful of complaints filed against it over all the the states that it operates in over the the past couple decades. They've had five claims of sexual harassment, only one of which was in Wisconsin. And these are construction sites and things like that. They were all settled. We don't know the merits of any of them. Sometimes you get these claims and they're they're valid. Other times they're claims that are filed by employees that are on their way out and they're they're just settled. So, but, but they've had five claims over a period of 20 years. And when I've talked to people who work for the Michaels Corporation, taking politics out of this, they will tell you that it's a wonderful place to work. The people who work there, and they have 8,000 employees right now, just tell you that it's, and this is men, this is women, it's a great place to work. Now, I, I, can I, can I tell you definitively that at some job site in Nevada 15 years ago, there weren't some you know guys that behaved inappropriately? No, I, I don't know the facts of that. But I will tell you that over a 20-year period for any sort of large company to have a relative handful, and that's what this is, of complaints, tells you that, that the place is a pretty good place to work. It's not like it's rife with sexual harassment. But nevertheless, okay, this is, there's an effort to try to discredit Tim Michaels, so this becomes an issue. What happened, I believe, is that you had Democratic operatives who found these lawsuits, and then they convinced, it was Channel 58, to guppy on this and to run this story, and then they immediately turned around and took the story that they convinced Channel 58 to run, and they turned this into uh, you know anti-Michaels ads. Now, I don't think it's particularly resonating. But more importantly, I, I just think it's a cheap shot. And if you talk to, like I say, the people who work for the Michaels Corporation, they'll tell you that this 
this is really a low, cheap blow at, at a really, really good Wisconsin company. But that, that's, that's where we are now. So against that backdrop, I, I have a question. And the argument is, well, all right, if, if over a couple decades you had a, a handful of these claims against the Michaels Corporation, doesn't that mean that Tim Michaels is an awful human being who's unfit to be governor? That that's even though he might have not have had knowledge of it, but that that's what the argument is. Okay, that that's that's fine for all the people who think that's fair. I, I call your attention to a story that appears in the local newspaper today. Hunger Task Force condemns relocation of Cogs Center, leaving residents in the lurch. All right, and the story talks about how the the, the state has just closed down this Marsha P. Cogs Human Services Center. And that's where people go looking for food stamps, Medicaid enrollment, and things like like that. They've they've closed the building down because they are they are moving. Well, here's where it gets interesting. The only people there to answer the questions from people going, "Hey, where's all the help?" was Sherry Tussler, executive director of the anti-hunger public policy nonprofit, the Hunger Task Force, and her organization's food share advocates who had set up camp outside the Cog Center. Um, they're closed today because they're moving and they have no one here to help this guy, Tussler said as the man stormed off down the street. They could have sent notices to people's houses. They could have put up much larger signs at the building. They could have put them out up so much sooner. They did nothing. Our concern is that people don't know it's going to take a long time for people to adjust. And then the story goes on. Um, you know, Tussler's talking about how she's got all these concerns about the, the move under these circumstances. But here's the interesting part of the story. For the woman who runs the Hunger Task Force said the closure and the relocation in Milwaukee mark the latest in what she sees as deteriorating services to Milwaukee County residents by the state. In August of 2021, August of 2021, who was the governor? Oh, yeah, that, that would be Tony Evers. In August of 2021, Hunger Task Force filed a civil rights complaint with the U.S. Department of Agriculture in which it alleged discrimination, racism, and disparate treatment of Milwaukee residents. The decision to file the complaint came about after the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention lifted a mask requirement at all supplemental nutrition assistance program. That's the food stamp offices across the state, except for Milwaukee County, leaving more than 200,000 Milwaukee County households remaining without in-person help to obtain emergency food benefits. The complaint alleged limited hours, resources, availability at the Milwaukee site, including homeless people being directed to call an 800 number instead of requiring in-person help, etc., etc. In October of 2021, Hunger Task Force filed a retaliation complaint when the Department of Human Services directed Hunger Task Force staff not to enter any public building or offer help. The intentionally disparate treatment of Milwaukee demonstrated by the careless action of state employees who deny and delay help as a matter of business practice is not just careless but discriminatory. Harming people based upon their race or status through intentional public policy is not acceptable for the people of Milwaukee. Again, who who was the governor when all this was going on? Oh, yes, that would be Tony Evers. I raise this because, all right— if it's going to be an issue 
with the way Tim Mike Tim Michaels is unsuited to be governor because over a couple decades this company that he you know his family owns had really a relative handful of complaints given 8000 employees over a 20 year period all across the states H- had a handful of these complaints but that shows he didn't care about you know women and discriminated all right this is 2021 this is Tony Evers, you know, Department of Human Health and Human Services. All right, where where is the outrage? Does this demonstrate then that by the same rationale that Tony Evers is unfit to be the governor and has declared war on poor people in Milwaukee? I mean, where where are the stories about this? Now, where is the coverage about this? And in the week before the election, is this something that you should consider? Do we add this along to uh, the other failures of the Evers administration, whether it was getting unemployment checks out in a, re- in a reasonable basis during the pandemic, or the problems that are going on at the veterans' home, or the problems with the delays in licensing, and now you have this. All I'm saying is that, okay, if we're going to see these ads talking about how awful the Michaels Corporation is and what that reflects on Tim Michaels, what does it say about Tony Evers that you've now got— the- there, the, the hunger task force is alleging that the state retaliated them and it retaliated against them and was behaving in discriminatory fashions toward people in Milwaukee. If if Michaels and this is an issue with the Michaels Corporation, seems to me that this is a much more significant issue with Tony Evers. All right, will we see some more ads about this, or will we see ads at all about this in the next couple of days? Time will tell. When we come back. Well, it's one thing that lots of people are buying. We're going to discuss why. Stick around. So very glad to have you with us. All right. On a regular basis on this program, we talk about the the out-of-control crime in in southeastern Wisconsin. And if you look at the crime statistics in Wisconsin, one of the things you find is Crime is actually outside some of the urban areas, outside of southeastern Wisconsin in general and outside of the city of Milwaukee in particular. Crime is, is, is relatively stable. Milwaukee is out of control. And, and we have stories on a daily basis about not just the reckless driving and the car thefts, but the, the, just the, the incredible violence. We're going to hit 200 homicides probably in the next week or so, unfortunately. And, and it's, it's day after day. And it's not just anymore an, an isolated shooting incident. It's, hey, we just found 50 bullet casings or we found 100 bullet casings. It really is, in many respects, it's the wild, wild west. And I understand that there's a degree of frustration that we all have. And as I've talked about before, it's really a very small percentage of people who are criminally inclined. I would say 98, 99% of the population are law-abiding citizens. But the problem is we have a, a handful, a criminal element that we, for whatever reason, refuse to deal with as they need to be dealt with. And they keep getting out on the street, whether it's on parole or probation or double secret probation or slap on the wrist sentences. And they continue to commit crime after crime after crime and turn honest law-abiding citizens into victims. So I don't know that these numbers are any sort of surprise, but it is fair to say that in Wisconsin in general, gun sales are soaring. And this is, it's a phenomenon that you're seeing across the, the, the country. But for example, here's the, the deal. They're estimated in the first half of this year, first half of this year in Wisconsin, they estimate that 316,000 
plus guns were sold in Wisconsin in the first half of 2022. That would be about 5,500 for every 100,000 people. That would make us, in per capita gun sales, that would make us um, 11th among all 50 states. In Wisconsin, just to give you some other statistics, in 2021, there were slightly over 95,000 concealed carry licenses. The estimates are that 45.3% of homes in Wisconsin have guns. Now, that could be a little bit low. It could be 42%. It could be 48 or 49%. But one thing that is, is not in dispute is the fact that more and more people in Wisconsin are choosing to own firearms. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Why do you think this is going on? Why do you think that so many people in this state, and again, I, I don't have the breakdown between handguns and deer rifles and things like that, but I think it's, it's very, very clear that especially with crime increasing like it is, what you're seeing is that more and more people are making the decision that they want to buy firearms. Whether they apply for concealed carry or not is a whole different sort of story, but they're buying them to keep in their homes. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is a WTMJ talk and text line. Now, I understand there's some people that go through all the hand ringing about the, the criminals that have the guns, and I think that is a legitimate sort of concern. But the response is more and more law-abiding citizens are making the decision to buy guns themselves. And I think it's very clear. I think it's they're buying them for personal protection, and they're buying them in response to this realistic belief that crime around here has gotten particularly out of control, and they want to have firearms to protect themselves. So why are gun sales exploding? No pun intended. Why are we seeing so many people buying firearms? Wisconsin, like I say, 11th in the country in per capita firearm sales just in the first six months of this year. I think it's one answer. I think it is crime. And I think if you want to have a sub answer to that, I think it's that people are becoming more and more discouraged with the ability of law enforcement to deal with the crime and the criminal justice system to deal with the crime. I think more and more people are concerned about personal protection. So why are people buying guns? And if you are one of the people that has made the decision to, I don't know, purchase maybe a firearm for the first time, what was it that motivated you to do that? 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line we discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I bet many of those new purchases are females as they move into the marketplace. Well, I would agree with you, Jeff. I move around Milwaukee County, and frankly, crime is out of control. After my mother-in-law was rear-ended, that pulled from the car and beaten, I decided it was time for me to begin ca- carrying. Jeff, the reason gun sales are up is self-protection. Used to be people would carry a baseball bat. Now it has become handguns. Let's start... With Jeremy in New Berlin. Jeremy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good morning, Jeff. How are you today, sir? Good. What do you think? Or afternoon. What do you think? Good. Uh, I think there's a few things that contribute to this. I think uh, some of it are the numbers catching up from people uh, with all the COVID restrictions and things like that who have found and embraced the outdoors mm-hmm. that have never really done that before. Um, some of them are getting into target practice, shooting, hunting, things like that. Uh, myself just first uh, purchased a shotgun for my son who's on the trap team for a school. Um, but I won't even travel into the city of Milwaukee anymore without carrying my concealed carry 
uh, weapon. And my mother, who is 68, not only just bought a small handgun for her purse, she bought a much larger handgun for home protection. And I think that has a lot to do with what's going on. The home protection market for females is incredible at this particular point. Well, I think you're, I mean, I think you're onto something. Now, thanks. It would be interesting to, to know, I mean, where the breakdown is by gender, but I, I just, you know, an, anecdotally, I, I think you're exactly right. I think that there's a, a lot of females, and even if it's not putting a gun in your purse, it, it's a lot of females, especially females who are, um, and I don't mean this to sound sexist, but people who are living by themselves, I, I can, I certainly imagine there's a lot of women who decide, okay, well, I, I, I'm afraid that there is going to be the, this break-in, or I'm afraid I'm going to be you know, in a particular situation where I need a gun. Now, what I always say in these comments is, you know, the, wor- the thing that's worse than needing a gun and not having one is having a gun and not being able or knowing how to use it. So that, that, that comes with that. But I think that there's a lot of people who are, in fact, you know, making this decision. And I think a lot of it comes down to personal protection. Jeff in Milwaukee. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Good afternoon. Yeah, um, one of the reasons I, I purchased a, a couple guns, um, and get, well, I usually get one every year, but it is crime. I live in the city of Milwaukee. I hear gunshots. I'm actually in the North Shore area, but still in Milwaukee and right around the Silver Spring area. And there's gunshots all night long. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the second thing I think is, is helping responsible for causing the the gun buy is possible legislation on these radical Democrats. And they're always fighting. They're always trying to limit your capacity of magazines. They have attacks on AR-15s. And so I went out and bought an AR-15 specifically just for um, in case the legislation legislation changes. But all in all, I think crime is the number one reason. Well, no, I think you're you're right. Is what right? Whenever whenever they talk about like bringing back certain restrictions, there's some people that go out and, and buy guns. But I, I see. I, I agree with you. I don't think that explains what the big increase is. It is the personal protection, and it's that this is this is the defund the police movement and stuff like that coming home to roost because. You know, people understand this. People see the headlines. They turn on televisions. And, you know, every night when the story is, okay, th- these are all these shootings. I mean, you just said you, you live on Silver Spring. You had that incident, was it yesterday, was it Sunday afternoon, where you have 100, bu- what, was it 100 bullet casings or 50 or 100 bullet casings that they found outside on 62nd and Silver Spring, where one or more people just indiscriminately opened up shooting into those those uh, those apartments that are there on 62nd and Silver Spring, and this is this is happening all over, and it is happening with regularity. And I think you know, for everybody who says, "Well, there's too many guns out on the street," well, the underlying problem is there's too many guns that are in the hands of the wrong people. So it's not necessarily so much the guns that we need to be worried about because. It wouldn't occur to most people to take their firearm, walk into a 7-Eleven, and hold somebody up. It wouldn't occur to the vast majority of people to take a firearm, walk into a parking lot of a Piggly Wiggly, stick it at the head of, of, of a woman with a shopping cart, and, and take their car. But unfortunately, we do have that certain percentage of the criminal element that's out there that feels comfortable doing that. So now you have more people thinking that, hey, I want the gun because I want to be able to protect myself or my loved ones. If you are worried about the proliferation of guns, I firmly believe that the biggest way to deal with that is to crack down on the criminals. Get the criminals off the street for lengthy periods of time, and your people aren't going to worry about, gee, I, I need a gun because somebody might be busting into you know, my house or somebody might be carjacking me in a parking lot of a shopping center, period. 
ever heard the term Pyrrhic victory? That, that actually, the, the historical reference to it is there was this king named Pyrrhus who, eh, like about 280 B.C., got involved in a, in a battle with the Romans, and they, they ended up winning. It, you know, he, he won, but what happened is the losses that he incurred were so great that it was as if he lost. I mean, just, yes, they were able to fend off the Romans, but it came at such a cost that essentially his, his kingdom w- was ended. So when you hear the term Pyrrhic victory, it means, well, it, it's a win that actually kind of turns out to be a loss. And you're seeing a classic example of that. Mike had the, the news story. Now, we've talked about this a couple times in the past. They're the big national concert promoter is called FPC Live. It's Live Nation, and they, they book acts, for example, at, the, um, at, at Alpine Valley, book acts all over, all over the country. Um, FPC Live, and I'm going to call them Live Nation. They're actually part of this thing called Frank Productions. But what they wanted to do is they wanted to build <clears throat> a concert venue in Milwaukee down by Summerfest, and the venue was going to, I think it would seat, the idea was that this is for smaller acts, acts that aren't going to draw, you know, 10,000 people. So they're, they're, or they're not going to draw fifteen or 20,000 people. So they're acts that are too small to put into to Fiserv, or they're actually probably too small to put into the, the Milwaukee Arena, and they're too small to put into some of the large outdoor venues. I mean, so these would be venues that would seat up to like, like 4,000 people. And, and the idea was we're going to have two, two different venues for some of these smaller sort of concerts. And they wanted to locate this down by the Summerfest grounds. You had plenty of parking there, and it's an area that's kind of you know, ripe for development. Well, what's been going on is there's a number of area businesses, uh, competitor, comp- com- competitors, um, who, who've argued, hey, look, if Live Nation comes in, and we've talked about this on the program before, what they're going to do is they're going to take away business from like the Paps and the Riverside and Turner Hall and the Milwaukee Theater and the Rave and the Eagles Club. They will come in and they will they'll take away business, and because they have this relationship with talent, they'll be able to squeeze us, us out, us the other promoters out, and so what will happen is we'll ultimately end up closing. Well, okay, so – what they did, these group of people who were trying to protect the existing businesses from the competition, they, they partnered with people in the neighborhood down by Summerfest, and they started objecting, raising issues that, okay, this venue would be inappropriate for the neighborhood, and there's issues with regard to land use down by the lakefront or whatever. And so they were effectively able to kill this development down on the lakefront by Summerfest, which in my opinion would have been a great location for it. So there was this, oh, we're going to like high five, this is great, you know, we've stopped this. Well, they did and they didn't, because what happened is FPC Live, Live Nation, what they said is, okay, if we can't be down here, what we're going to do is we're going to enter into a partnership with the Bucks, and we're going to build this facility same facility we were talking about building on the lakefront, except this time we are going to be building it on the location where the Bradley Center was, right next to Fiserv, right in the heart of the Deer District. All right, now this is a much, 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 in my opinion, more desirable location for attracting you know people because you've already got all the parking that's down there with the Deer District. You've already got the different um, you know restaurants and all the different venues that are there by putting it on the site of where the Bradley Center was, I think you increase the chances of this succeeding exponentially. 
And the, the news today, and then, of course, a lot of the, again, the same folks that were trying to fight locating this down on the lakefront, they then banded together, and we've talked about this once or twice, and we've had some of their representatives on. They, they said, okay, well, now we're going to try to, to fight having it here. And the, the news today is the Milwaukee Common Council apparently unanimously, with one excused absence, approved allowing the, the venue to go there, approved their, their zoning plan. And the argument that was made was, hey, look, you know, competition is competition. And, you know, the Common Council has never used zoning rules to try to say, okay, we're going to protect one business after another. So the effect of all this is you now have this this group that wanted to build by the lakefront. They're now, they're going to be building where the Bradley Center was, a much more desirable location, which, like I say, I think gives them a much greater chance for success. I think it would have been successful regardless, but now it's going to be right next to Fiserv. It's going to be in the heart of the Deer District. You've got all those things. People will be going down there. So it's the classic definition of Pyrrhic victory. Hey, we were able to stop it from going into the lakefront, but now, look, it's in a much, much more desirable location. Now, let me just give you an idea about this. I, I have supported this all along because I, I'm a big believer in competition. And, and just like when Walmart came into you know areas and Walmart ended up putting, okay, Jeff's hardware store, the local hardware store on Main Street out of business, that was that was a matter of competition. We didn't say to Walmart, hey, you, you can't go in there. You know, the Jeff's hardware had to figure out a way that it was going to compete with Walmart, and some places did compete and, and succeeded, and others weren't able to do it. But that's just, that's the reality. That's the business model that, that's out there. So I, I don't doubt that a couple of these existing venues might not be able to deal with the new competition. But that's that's just the free market going on there. Now, the one thing that you need to watch out for, and, and maybe – you know, this is another definition of Pyrrhic victory. At some point in time, I fully expect that if if it turns out that Live Nation is operating in a monopolistic fashion, if they're controlling all the talent so these other places, you know, aren't able to book anybody, well, you know, that's going to be an antitrust issue that might come up a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. But in the short term, you know, this place is going to be built. It is going to be successful, and it's going to be more successful, I think, in the location it's at now than it would have been if they had just gone ahead and built where they originally wanted to build down by Summerfest. Go figure. I am having one of my head explode moments, and no, this doesn't have anything to do with the election. It has to do with the latest news involving... Northridge Shopping Center. Now, if you're a regular listener of this program or you grew up around here like I did, you know, you can remember back in the day, and this would be late 70s, early 80s, where Northridge, which is located Brown Deer Road and like 76, that's where that's where it starts and it goes, you know, west for blocks and blocks. You will remember, you can remember when this was like this thriving area and Northridge in its heyday, movie theaters and it had you know, four big department stores, and it just had a ton of regular... It was a thriving mall, and there was a ring around Northridge that had, I don't know, everything from a Toys R Us store to multiple restaurants. Um, it was just... It, it was an area where if you grew up on the North Shore in the 80s and probably early 90s, this is where you went. Well, you know, North Shore, for a variety of reasons, and we've talked about that extensively, it, it deteriorated, and ultimately what happened is the, the shopping mall just went under. It circled the drain and businesses closed. And it's been 
just an eyesore for going on 20 years. There is this company called U.S. Black Spruce Enterprises, which is a an offshoot of, of a Chinese company. And years and years ago, they came out with this plan saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take Northridge, and we've got these really fancy plans, and we're going to turn it into an Asian trademark. Um, so for what and, and people, oh, this would be great. Well, okay, for whatever reason, that never happened. And nowadays, indoor shopping malls, they're just they're, they're, they're creatures of the past. That's not that's not how people shop anymore. Northridge was allowed to fall into complete disrepair. It would take millions of dollars just to get Northridge to the point where you could start putting stores in there and then you'd have to spend millions and millions more. To, to, to make it habitable, and, and nobody's going to do that. It, it's, it's, not a, it's not an attractive location anymore. You would need such an incredible investment, and this Chinese company has no intention of spending that money. They never did, or at least if they did, they, if they really did, they would have done this sometime in the last 15 or 20 years. So everybody is familiar with the story now. The, they, the city wants to tear it down and do something else with it. They got an order— the company appealed. They got two members of the Wisconsin Court of Appeals to agree and, and put the put the the raise order, the demolition, on hold. All right. Well, while that was going on, the, the the place got even worse and worse and worse, and you started to have multiple fires. And the fire chief was actually on my program talking about what a danger it is to have to send his people in to put this out. And so then the court. One of the judges came in and said, okay, well, here's the deal. Um, you you got to fix this. We, we cannot have this being a safety hazard, and I give you X amount of time to do it, and then if you don't do it, I'm going to start fining you. And, of course, they didn't do it. It's, it's, it's beyond hope. That, that's the problem. It's just flat out too far gone to be salvaged. And so the, the company made some minor efforts, but it just didn't happen. And so the judge issued another, let's tear this down, another raise, R-A-Z-E, order. So the latest development today in the head-exploding moment is this U.S. Black Spruce Enterprises, Inc., which is like the American version of this Chinese company, has now decided to appeal the judge's order allowing the city to enforce a, a demolition order. The appeals goes after the October 3rd ruling, and it's designed to delay delay the order. And so what this company is doing is they're going back to the Court of Appeals where they won once, and they're asking them to stay this order, hold off, let's continue to allow Northridge to stay there, deteriorate, become more crime-ridden, become more subject to arsons, let's, let's hold this off. And depending on, you know, how— depending on how the Court of Appeals treats this, it could, at least for a long period of time, delay the demolition. Now, the other thing the Court of Appeals could do is they could say, now, you know, we got fooled once by you guys. You know, you you guppied us once. You convinced us to allow this thing to continue. And then, you know, you never did anything with it. Conditions have gotten worse. So there's no guarantee one way or the other what's going to happen. But this company that owns this, and it's— you know, you hate to say this, but these, at least on this particular issue, the, these are these are not good civic citizens at all to continue to try to delay this and delay this and delay this. Um, and the, the question is, you know, I mean, it's going to cost a bunch of money to 
to demolish this. And the question is going to be, you know, who's going to ultimately end up paying for it and things like that. And I'm sure this Chinese company is, if their history is any indicator, trying to do everything they can to avoid having to spend a dime on this particular property. But the bottom line of all this is they're, they're still continuing to delay this. And at some point in time, I'm hoping members of the Court of Appeals, you know, wisen up and say, look, you cannot allow this to stand there. It is an eyesore. It is a blight. It is a danger. And all this company is doing is trying to stall. Now, I'm not sure what they're trying to gain by, by these stalling things. You know, maybe, again, it's trying to get out from the hook under the hook from having to pay for some of the demolition expenses and things like that. But whatever their motives are, it's time to say enough is enough. This is like these kids, you know, when you have a kid that's misbehaving and you tell them, don't touch that. Don't touch that. Don't take that. Don't touch that. And they keep doing it, and you just keep ignoring it and say, this time I really mean it. Don't do this. Well, I'm, I'm hoping the, the court system will finally say, this time we really mean it, and I'm hoping they're going to allow us to tear down that thing before somebody really does die in there, whether it's a firefighter going in to try to put out an arson or one of the kids that's breaking in to set the arson fires who ends up getting trapped in there. It's crime-ridden. It's time for it to go. And the fact that this company is continuing to fight these orders, it just makes your head explode Sometimes, you know, you hope the legal system works like it's supposed to and works for the benefit of the community, and the community needs to have Northridge torn down. As long as we're talking about head-exploding moments, Racine mom and baby hit by SUV while trick-or-treating, wait for it, in Milwaukee. Linda Scott drove to Milwaukee from Racine so that her son, Carson Lay, could enjoy his first-ever trick-or-treat with his family. The normally joyous occasion quickly took a turn for the worst when Scott, 22, and her 11-month baby were hit by a reckless driver who then, wait for it, fled the scene. The incident happened near Humboldt Park in Milwaukee around 6.30 p.m. Saturday. The Bayview neighborhood had trick-or-treat until 8 p.m. Saturday. Scott was meeting with her family at the park before heading off into the neighborhood. The Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office says a driver in a black sport utility vehicle, possibly a Tahoe, drove through a stop sign on Park Road. Now, let me, let me just back up for a second. This is, this is Halloween night. It's trick-or-treating. Okay, so you you know that there's kids all around. You know that there's kids that are going to be crossing the street. My guess is there's a lot more people that are out on the street that would normally be there. Okay, so a driver in a black sport utility vehicle, possibly a Tahoe, drove through a stop sign. So you blow a stop sign on Park Road before crashing into another vehicle and hitting Four people, including a 40-year-old woman and a 37-year-old man. Scott and baby Carson, who was in his stroller, were hit head-on. I was walking with my child in the stroller. As I'm walking towards my sister's car, the vehicle came speeding around, striking the side of my sister's car like scraping it, and then came at me and hit me head-on. Both were transported to the hospital with injuries. Scott believes she took most of the force, but Carson needed to get stitches in his chin. As of Monday, they had both been released from the hospital. So that is, of course, the good news. Scott said a woman who announced herself as a nurse rendered aid to her and her baby prior to the arrival of the paramedics. But, of course, you know, the, the story then is after speeding, you blow a stop sign. There's all these people around. It's Halloween night. And then the person driving this drives off. 
sheriff's office doesn't have anybody in custody. As I've said before in this program, it used to be that hit and runs were cleared relatively quickly because you get a description of the car. Sometimes somebody gets the license plate, etc. The problem now is there's so many hit and runs that the you know law enforcement is kind of overwhelmed. But I will tell you whether it's I, I don't care. The, the good news is that that somebody that, that nobody's dead. But that's also kind of a miracle. When and if they catch the person that does this, if that person is not in prison for at least five years, it will be an absolute disgrace. The only way we can come to a stop, to make this stuff stop, is to start locking up the people who do it. And we're so reluctant to do it. We're so reluctant to hold people accountable. Well, it's but for the grace of God that this 22-year-old woman and her 11-month-old child weren't dead, again, because of somebody driving irresponsibly in a car, blowing through a stop sign, hitting all sorts of people, and then, like the coward he or she was, driving off into the night. Hope they catch him, and I hope that person goes to prison for a long time. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue. It's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. Mike Spaulding, you were... I cannot listen to a story about the Milwaukee Christmas tree being harvested without thinking back to one of the... Now, this may be... This is probably before your time, but it was one of the the famous moments on live television. Um, Diane Pathew used to be she's now she's a reporter delightful woman i just just delightful she was a reporter at channel four she left i, I want she she left and went to chicago which is where she's from and she's she now works she's like a reporter and a fill-in anchor at i believe it's channel seven in chicago but but she's been gone for about 10 years so this was 2008 and you can i'll, I'll try to pull this up off of youtube and and, and put it up on, on twitter but did you ever did you ever hear about this this incident involving her? I think I know what you're talking about. So she's it's 2008, the day they are harvesting the the Christmas tree. So she's on a she's on live television. She's on Channel Four live, and they're cutting down the Christmas tree. And so she's standing like, and you can see the Christmas tree in the background. And she's saying, "Oh, they're harvesting the Christmas tree and all this." And and you see they've got a big crane which is going to like lift the tree. And the crane drops it, and you see this Christmas tree just come, this huge tree just comes crashing down. And, and Diane on the air just says, ooh, that's not good. <laughs> you know. And it's just, that is now, that, that just, of course, be, became just absolutely legendary. And again, it's, it's a YouTube sensation, but it's like, ooh, that's not good. So whenever I, I hear about this Christmas tree, it's like, huh, you, you wonder if they're able to get that or not. Whenever we assign a new reporter to go to the home and, and witness the harvesting, you better believe Eric and I share that story every single time. Right, yeah. exactly. Just kind of like stew. But it was just what, what made it so priceless, and I will try to find the YouTube thing and, and put it out on Twitter, is that, and it was just, it was classic Diane Pathew because it was just so matter of fact. I mean, it was just, it was just the honest reaction that you have as you're like doing this report and you're watching this and all of a sudden you see this giant Christmas tree just crashing down. Ooh, that's not good. And, you know, no, it wasn't good, but that's, that's so the Milwaukee Christmas tree got harvested today and and apparently they didn't drop it. Did not drop it. Everything went smoothly this morning. And this is the first year they're going to put it down at the Deer District, I understand. Yes. yes. So, Which I, I I like that idea. I do too. It, the, the city hall was just not it didn't feel safe 
because of just how close it, it just felt very close to the road. They're constantly doing work there at City Hall in downtown. And I just feel like the Deer District is going to be easier and more friendly to get to. Well, yeah. And I think they've, and it, they've moved the locations from time to time. I mean, I seem to remember once that they had it in like this little park down on the third ward or something like that. Cause I, I remember one really cold night I went to like the, the Christmas tree lighting thing and stuff, but I, no, I think the deer district is great. That the deer district is completely developed and hopefully they'll make sure the thing, um, doesn't fall over. <laughs> that's all you fingers do. crossed. I'm or, gonna, or I'm not gonna, fingers I will crossed. try to find that YouTube clip, but it's just, oh, I don't think that's good. You know, absolutely correct. All right. In that vein, a week from today, people will go to the polls. And I understand people have been voting, you know, already. I mean, I, I voted a week ago today. My wife and I, first day for early open voting, we went. And so our, our ballots are in. So election day is a week from today. Hopefully, by, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock at night, we will know the results in Wisconsin. Some results are going to take longer than others in some of the states. But, um, and again, depending on how close the election is, and my sense is I don't think it's going to be as close as some people might think, but, you know, who, who knows? But in any event, the, the thing after the elections, and this is one of the great things about elections, it's that you have winners and losers, in, it, it's one of the reasons I think people like to get involved in election campaigns because for much of life, there's not – it's not a win-lose situation. I mean unless you're in sports or something like that. It's a, hey, you go about your life and you have good days and you have bad days, but it's not like win or lose. In, in elections, like come Tuesday night um, or – in the immediate aftermath, there's going to be a winner. We're going to have a governor. It's going to be Tony Evers. It's going to be Tim Michaels. We're going to have an attorney general. You know, we're going to have you know a, a U.S. senator. There's going to be a winner or a loser at some point in time. And I think that's one of the things that people end up like. It's what they like about politics, not just that their candidate wins, but also there's this definitive resolution. My guy won or my gal lost or whatever that might be. But it's tough to get to that stage. So over the course of the next week, uh, because the election continues, particularly for governor, tends to be, it looks like it's going to be very, very close here in Wisconsin. I suspect that, you know, all those advertisements that you've seen over the course of, you know, the last several months, you're going to continue to see them. All those advertisements that you've heard on the radio, you're going to continue to hear them. I mean, I think it's going to be kind of nonstop moving up to, you know, the election, because again, the elections are are close. U.S. Senate race, I'm not sure, is going to be quite as close, but but there's going to be a lot of ads that are out there. And if you are like most people, you have probably reached the point where you're saying, okay, I've had it. I just, you know, I sit down to have the TV news on the background when I'm having dinner at six o'clock or 530 or whatever. And there's just one ad after another. And it's, you know, it's this ad or that ad or whatever. And I've just, I've reached the point where I can't stand it. Okay. Well, they're not going to go away because in the last week of the campaign, I don't know that there's anybody out there that's really still persuadable. I think most people have made their minds up, but you want to make sure you you encourage people to go out and vote. So the, the people that are leaning one way or the other, that you get the ads to kind of give them the motivation to go out and make sure that they end up voting. 
and also for the people who are going to be like doing the canvassing and driving people to the polls. You want them to believe that your candidate has a real chance of winning. So if if the candidate the campaigns have gone dark and there's no advertising and stuff that that has the effect of kind of depressing the people who would you need to to work for you and things like that. So that's why you're going to see a lot of ads. I don't know that you're going to see any materially different ads, and I don't know that there's any sort of ad that somebody's going to run now in the last couple of days, which is going to be able to cut through the, the the clutter that is that is out there because you know we've just all seen so many of the different ads. I thought, and we'll probably do this once or twice more before the election next Tuesday, but I, I am intrigued by how the ads have played out this year. And maybe the best way to go get into that would just be to simply ask a question of the different ads that you've seen. And let's let's try to be positive first. There's a negative aspect of this as well. But which is the ad? It doesn't have to be a positive ad. But which is the ad that you've seen, and it could be for any of the candidates that are out there, that you believe is the most effective ad that's out there? 855. 616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line of all the different ads. And believe me, I understand it's tough to keep them tough to keep them straight. Of all the different ads you've seen, what do you think is the most effective ad? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I did send out, I did find that, um, I did find the link to when they were harvesting the, the live Chris, the Christmas tree on live television 14 years ago, 2008, and Diane Pathew, who's now at Channel 7, I think, in Chicago, says, oh, that's not good as <laughs> the thing collapses. So if you want to see that video, it's kind of legendary in uh, Milwaukee media moments, at least. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. All right, our number, 855 855- Six one six one six twenty, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. We have been listening to the ads. We have been seeing the ads. Um, we have been reading the ads. They have been popping up on internet. All right, my question is, is there one that is particularly memorable? And I guess that's one of the ways you define effective. You know, what what do you think has been the best, most effective ad that you have heard? And it can be for any of the candidates, for any of the offices during the election season. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Glenn in Burlington. Glenn, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Well, thank you, Jeff. Hi, Glenn. Um, The most effective ad I saw was I was watching the Packer football game, actually, and the ad came on where there was a, it was actually my fifth grade science teacher came on, and his sister had been murdered, and the murderer was the one that um, got let out of jail with the the Evers group. Yeah, yeah, so that one really resonated. And I can remember when that happened in Burlington, and um, and then just this guy would be calling the family saying he was going to get them too from jail. So it was a, it was really disturbing in the city. Yeah. No, thanks. For, I, I think I, I know, I know which one you're talking about. There, there's another one along the same lines where the, the woman is talking about how it was her sister's head that was chopped off or something. And it just, I mean, you, you, it, it cuts through the clutter and, and you really hear about that. I do think the, the, discretionary parole issue has become a big deal. I think they are 
effective ads. I know there's some people who think that, oh, it's not fair to hold him responsible, hold Evers responsible, but it is kind of the reality. I mean, as I've said before, Evers went into office with a pledge to try to reduce the prison population by half. The only way you do that is you either you appoint judges who send fewer people to prison or you release people that are in prison. That was clearly like the mandate that, that they had. And so you had the parole commission that was just releasing people willy-nilly. And I, I think People didn't know that that was going on, and now they're finding out about it. And that's clearly a driving issue in this year's election. Is it going to be enough to carry Michaels? I don't know. But it's clearly, I think, something that is effective. All right, 855-616-1620. In your opinion, what is the most effective ad that's out there? Ethan in Portage. Ethan, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Ethan. Uh, I think the the most effective one I've seen has been the... Uh, Ron Johnson ad um, with Mandela Barnes essentially saying that releasing criminals is sexy. Yeah, it's one that sticks in my mind the most. Um, yeah, yeah, and I'm a, I, I am a lifelong Republican who is no longer a Ron Johnson fan, uh, and that ad has probably influenced me more to not vote in this election than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a. I mean, whenever you have, thanks to call, whenever you have. The ads that are able to, and they're in context, you know, take the, um, you know, take the, the opponent, because you, you can't run away from that. You know, that, that's, that's, that's what Mandela Barnes believes. That, that, and that's, you know, you can agree with that, you can disagree with that, but that is who Mandela Barnes is. And you have it, it's not just Ron Johnson saying it, it's not just somebody's other words saying it, it's, yeah, this is this is how he feels about this. It's Mandela Barnes sitting with the t-shirt that says abolish ice. You know, when you, it's those pictures, but I do think you're correct. I think that's an ad that cuts through the clutter. And, you know, you can argue about whether these ads are fair or not, but they're ads that kind of cut through the clutter. Um, Jeff, to me, the best ad is where they show the names of the killers and rapists that have been released under Evers and Barnes. I think it works for both um, both of the races. Jeff, the Johnson ads that exposed and um, recounted Barnes's list of radical policies and quotes have been an absolute game changer. Jeff, I think the most effective ad is the one that shows Kenosha burning. That powerful visuals. There, there's no question about that. And on, on the flip side, I, I just see, I think, and I've said this before, and maybe I'll be proven wrong a week from now, I think Democrats vastly overplayed their hand on, on abortion. I, I think that the constant, it's going to turn out that close to like one out of every two ads they ran was, was abortion ads. I, I think that there have been some effective ones, but I think it reaches the point of of diminishing returns. But I think that there's been some of those ads as as well that have clearly been effective. Um, Jeff, how about the ad from Ron Johnson that just played on your radio station? Highlights Ron's history and contrasts with his opponent's history. I've, you know, I've said that I think early on in the campaign, one of the ads, and it ran right after Labor Day, that I thought was particularly effective, and I wouldn't be surprised if they revisited sometime in the next couple of days, was the one where, you know, Senator Johnson had, had his daughter on, you know, and she was talking about, you know, what her, her father's accomplishments and things like that. I thought that was effective. I think um, what typically happens in, in elections is you, you have all the negative advertising, and then as it gets the last couple of days of the election, 
what in order to seal the deal, you have politicians that typically then kind of revert back to some positive advertising. Now, I'm not sure that that's going to be what actually happens in this case. But yeah, I thought the last Ron Johnson ad was was a good one. Jeff, the parole ads have been effective. Um, the parole ads have been effective. I think, though, they're fear-mongering. I think they're unfair and they're disgusting. No, I don't think they're unfair at all. But I, I think they have been affected. Jeff, I like the... Um, I like the radio ad where Ron Johnson, where for Ron Johnson, where Barnes is interviewing for the job. You reported no income, didn't file a tax return, bought a condo. Were you getting allowance from your mom and dad? Yeah, you saw that one as well. Let's talk to Mike in Appleton. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, I think uh, a big one. A big one for me is the uh, obviously the need for uh, police and. Uh, and it's the uh, Kenosha police officers. I mean, just the, just their faces, and, and they're and talking about um, the need for the support that they didn't get um, when that all went down in Kenosha. And then the, I think it's Waukesha County uh, Sheriff's um, Department as well. Right. Um, I think that's a big turning point for all of us. Is um, whether you supported police before or not. That's we we all need. You know, we all know that need that now mm-hmm. and to steer the well i'm sorry i think we might have lost your call Compe- de- definitely compelling visuals there, there's no question about that at all definitely uh compelling compelling visuals which helps make it it memorable i don't know my guess is that you're well here's another one jeff for me it's the lady that says how tony evers left a, let a murderer of one of her family members out of jail yeah, that's, I think, the one where they were talking about that he cut off her head or something like that. There's, they all kind of blur together. But those, are, those individual testimonials are definitely, are definitely ones that I think you know, are going to resonate as well. Um, let's see, Jeff, the radio ad this morning on your station regarding our weak armed forces uh, hit the nail right on the head. Not sure which that one, which one that one was. A number of people like that job interview ad as well, where Bob Barnes is being interviewed about his past accomplishments. So people are paying a little bit of attention. Let's talk to Karen in Wauwatosa. Karen, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Karen. Uh, I don't know if anyone brought this up because I just tuned in, but the Tim Michaels ad where his uh, uh, daughter talks about uh, when she was sick with the brain tumor. Right. Um, boy, that, that ad really changed my mind. I, I'm one of those um, uh, uh, suburban women yeah. that, that you hear about who are turning to the Republican Party. Yeah. And, 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 I mean, when Tim Michaels first started, he seemed, you know, too stiff, too military, too, mm-hmm. you know, gruff. But that ad, that really, that, that ad really turns that you know, around um, mm-hmm. with him standing there giving a check for $15 million to Children's Hospital. Right. I just think it's, a, it's, it's very effective. No, I think, thanks for your call. I, I think you're right, Karen, as well. I mean, I think that's, again, it's these sort of personal testimonials that are out there, and it tends, to, especially in a situation where the, the strategy against Tim Michaels has been to just, like, demonize him. Oh, he's this horrible, awful guy. 
and and you don't see the, the the huge philanthropic giving and things like that. And you're right. I mean, I think that's that's one that, that tends to humanize them. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. You're right, Karen. You're also it, it's how, how do the suburban women end up voting? Because that's that's a that's a swing group that goes you know back and forth. And um, well, I, I mean, I will make my election predictions um, coming as we get a little bit closer and all. But it's I, I think. You know, there are some ads in this entire sea of ads that we have. There are some that, that kind of cut through the clutter. And I think some of those ads are ones that you all mentioned. There are st- definitely ones that do that. Does anybody even know what that race is, I it just and I've, I've I've heard that ad a couple times, and matter of fact, I think there's a TV version of that as well. Call that Hipsch and tell him about that. This is one of the things that happens when you have all these advertising dollars that are spent. It, it's for the the lower profile races or what we would call the down ballot races. It, it's almost it's like okay, who who is this that that's talking about that that's race that's an assembly seat, um and. Ed Hipsch is the Republican challenger. He ran in 2020, which was, of course, you know, um, uh, he ran in 2020. And uh, the incumbent state representative is a guy named Tip McGuire. And um, that's the, so that that's the race. But it's you're, you're hearing radio advertising on abortion for for an assembly seat. Interestingly enough, so it shows of all the different of all the different issues that you would think would come up, but this is abortion. So that's that's an assembly seat in Kenosha. If you're wondering what the election is about, that okay? Remember we last week we we spent a segment of the program talking about the I think bizarre decision of the Milwaukee District Attorney's Office that doesn't prosecute people for reckless driving and doesn't, you know, prosecute people for car thefts and things of the like, in part because they're just so busy. You know, they made the decision to charge the 62-year-old man with a fel- uh, charge him with a misdemeanor for detaining the, the 23-year-old guy. This is the story where the, the 23-year-old guy was on a bicycle, and apparently there's a couple— People associated with him that are stealing cars out of a, a stealing car, stealing bicycles out of a neighbor's yard. Guy comes out, grabs this guy, and, and he's holding him. And he's, he has his hand around his throat. He wasn't he wasn't choking him. Kid, the guy didn't need to go to the hospital for treatment and stuff. But then somebody else sees it and takes a video. And this because the. 62-year-old man is white, and the guy that was being restrained is black. This becomes this huge racial issue, and so the district attorney's office decides to issue disorderly conduct charges, and the 62-year-old man is saying, hey, I'm trying to hold him. I'm watching this crime in progress. I think it's some of his buddies that are doing this. Turns out that some of the stolen bikes turn up in the 23-year-old man's house a day or two later. Now, he wasn't the one actually stealing them, but I think it's a fair inference that there were people that he might have been involved with with her stealing them. But to me, this whole thing was a, a no harm, no foul sort of thing. The, the 23-year-old guy wasn't injured, didn't have to go to the hospital. Um, at the same time, I think a lot of citizens, what, what is the message here where, you know, is it if you watch 
a crime being committed and you think one of these people is one of the perpetrators or associated with one of the people that are perpetrators, you're just supposed to kind of like let this go. So in, in Milwaukee, apparently that, that is the message that they are sending, I think, by issuing these charges, which brings me to a story in the New York Times about something that is going on in Portland. Just like Milwaukee, auto theft is out of control in Portland. The, the numbers are staggering. Now, I think they say that, you know, Portland's on pace to have like 10,000 cars stolen this year. Portland's a little bit bigger than Milwaukee in the area. And the police freely say that, look, we, be, you know, we, we can't deal with this. They say that, look, we have staffing challenges that prevent us from doing more to help solve car thefts. Said, look, we had this problem. Of course, Portland is one of the cities that has just been descended on by the liberal mob and the defund the police thing. And remember, you had the, the whole Occupy Portland sort of thing. The police are saying, look, we, we can't retain and recruit officers. The city, as part of the defund the police program, shrank the number of authorized positions we have. We've got the fewest police officers in any point in 30 years, and we have to prioritize other crimes over vehicle theft. We don't ignore them, but, you know, we, we, there's other stuff that's going on that's more serious. So we can't, we can't deal with this. We can't help people recover their cars. You know, we'll, we'll try, but, you know, don't count on it. It's pretty much like you're on your own. So what's happened? Well, let me share the beginning of the story as it appears in the New York Times out of Portland. At the end of a quiet residential street in North Portland, Titan Crawford took a calming drag off his cigarette, then shuffled past the gutted shell of a stolen Nissan pickup truck and into a patch of woodlands beyond. A little ways in, there was a Mazda sedan flipped upside down. He passed a Cadillac Escalade, the rainbow bumper sticker, one of the few features that remained intact. In the bushes nearby, there was a boat filled with furniture, tires, and shoes. He checked vehicle identification numbers, captured videos of an array of metal hulks along the way, came away disappointed. Nothing here is salvageable. For much of the past year, 38-year-old Crawford has led a growing network of volunteer sleuths who scour Portland streets, alleys, and forests, racing against time in the hopes of finding stolen vehicles before they end up shredded for parts. There's no shortage of work to be done. Vehicle thefts in Portland are on track to reach well over 10,000 this year, more than triple the number the city recorded a year ago, part of a nationwide trend that has accelerated. In Portland, the brazenness of the crimes, inattention from police, and desperation of residents who suddenly find themselves missing one of their most valuable possessions have led many to take matters into their own hands. And so then what the story goes on to talk about is how there's this network of people, and that's what they do. They they go out. They walk the streets. They try to find stolen cars. They try to, if they can, get in touch with the owners. They document where these stolen cars are. And the idea is sometimes then it's the owners that go out and they try to recover them themselves. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Is this vigilantism, or is this being a a good neighbor? They're out there. They recognize the police 
are unable to do what you would expect the police doing. And when I say this, I'm not meaning this is necessarily a knock on the cops. It's just that there's too many car thieves that are out there. They're stealing too many cars. But at the same time, you've got people that are murdering other people and shooting other people and carjacking other people, and they just don't have the time to deal with it while more and more people get victimized. So this group of citizens, this network, they're out there, and this is what they do. You know, they, they go down the streets. They go looking for cars that they believe might have been stolen. They find them, they take down the VINs, and then, you know, they try to figure out who they belong to. Are they, in fact, stolen? They try to notify people where they are so maybe they can be recovered before they get driven off. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, in in Milwaukee, we're, we're told that if you're watching an active crime being committed— and you restrain one of the people that you think might be at least peripherally involved with that, you're, you're going to get charged. You're going to get charged with disorderly conduct. Well, all right, what do you think about what these citizens are doing, recognizing that the police can't recover these cars? They're going out, and they are trying to identify them, help get their owner the information to maybe get them back. There is obviously some risk that's involved in this, because undoubtedly you're going to come up on some car, and maybe the people that stole it don't want to give it up. But all right, is this irresponsible or is this public service? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line we discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. Big story in the New York Times about how auto theft is so out of control in Portland. You could put in, you know, you could put in Milwaukee at that. There's now a number of citizens groups and, and what they do kind of like a citizens, I don't think they describe themselves as militia, but they will roam the streets and they will be looking for stolen cars. And, and they essentially, they, they're pretty good at knowing what they look f- like. Um, they'll, they'll have descriptions of cars that are stolen from, for example, their, their neighborhoods. And then once they find them, you know, what they'll do is they'll take down the vehicle identification number. They'll report where the cars are. Sometimes that gives an opportunity for the authorities to get involved. Moreover, maybe it's the time for the person whose car was ripped off to go and try to, to get it back. I think, I think it's great. Now, I mean, I'm not suggesting that you should have a, a citizen who tries to, I don't know, get involved when you've got the, the four 14-year-old punks that have just stolen the car. I'm not saying that the citizen necessarily needs to confront them. But if, if you see that stolen car in an alley somewhere, and yeah, this is, I know this car is stolen. I see the kids that are involved with this. I think, you know, getting the license plate number and reporting it, I think, you know, that would be a great thing, and having a network of people that are doing it would be a great thing. Didn't Hillary Clinton say it, it takes a village? Well, you know, maybe it takes a village to say that we've had it with all this car theft that's going on. Let's talk to Ted and Franklin. Ted, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Ted. Ted. Ted, Ted, Ted. I'm sorry, you're... you're no, I didn't. Ted, I did not hit the wrong button. There's t- Ted. Okay, my producer is telling me. Okay, lost Ted. Ted, call back if you could. I don't think I hit the wrong button. I was hitting that. My producer said, you hit the wrong button, which is entirely possible. Sometimes I do hit the wrong button. 855-616-1620. Jeff, is, as long as they aren't intent on going full out George Zimmerman anybody, there's nothing wrong at all with grouping together to try to protect personal property. I agree with that. Jeff, for evil to triumph, good people just need to do absolutely nothing. Well, that's, you know, that's true as well. This, this story, they, they talk about the network. 
For Mr. Crawford's network, the effort is less about vigilante justice. His group rules say that people who take the law into their own hands is not going to be tolerated, and more about community building and expanding eyes and ears around town. Rewards aren't allowed either. The group wants people motivated by a desire to help rather than focusing on finding cars that might earn money. Neighbors share pictures of license plates, keep watch during commutes to work, and hunt online for reports of stolen vehicles. This is an army, and it's exploding, says Victoria Johnson, who joined the group after someone drove off with her SUV while she was helping at the scene of a car accident. It does a body good to help give back and help. Now, see, you know, a lot of times, what do you do for this stuff? If you, if we understand that, okay, there's not enough cops out there to stop all the people that are out there stealing cars, you know, what what can you, in fact, do to help? Well, maybe this is one of these things, and maybe this is what some of these community activists should be incurring. Let's let's start our own group. And if you don't like the word militia, you know, you use another group. But but here's this. Let's start, you know, going through Let's start consciously, you know, going through the places where we find that these stolen cars are turning up. Let's document this. Let's find out. Let's work with the police department to find out if these cars are stolen. Let's get them back to their rightful owners before they get stripped or before, you know, some of the punks that stole them get back in them and drive them at 100 miles an hour and blow through a stop sign and kill someone. Now, that— I think would be a constructive thing. It would also be good for the leadership of the city of Milwaukee to come out and say, look, this is what we want to do. We we want to encourage citizens to get involved, not as vigilantes, but in recognition of the fact that crime is so rampant here that we cannot deal with it effectively. So what we have to end up doing is we need to depend on outside sources. If you see something, say something, and and maybe we can figure out a way to try to reconnect and get people's property back. And for everybody that always says to me, oh, it's not that big a deal that your car is stolen, obviously you have never had your car stolen. It's the invasion of, of your personal space by having a major asset stolen. It's the inconvenience of having to try to replace it. It's all the fear that goes along with, gee, what was in the car when it was stolen? You know, was it taken and was there a garage door opener there? Did I have my personal papers in there? What did I have in it? You know, car theft is a big deal. And one of the ways I think we get a handle on this is if more citizens groups decide, you know, what we're, we're, we're not going to be out there looking to confront the thugs and the punks and the gangbangers who are doing this, but we are trying to find these stolen cars. And when we find them, we're going to publicize where they are. We're going to identify them. And it, by the way, if in the process of doing that, we happen to, I don't know, catch some of the people that are involved in stealing the cars, uh, more power to them. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff, you're talking about cars being stolen. Let's talk about catalytic converters being stolen. Happened to me just this morning at 8.30 a.m. in Bayview. Yeah, that's, you know, that's one of the other things. In, in the category of people will steal anything, um, matter of fact, my my friends John and Mary, who live in Menominee Falls, who were over at my place yesterday for dinner, um, they, they, had, they, had, they had a car, actually like an old van or something that was in their driveway, and somebody in the middle of the night came and, and stole the catalytic converter. That's the, the big thing. What you have to realize around here is that people will steal anything, even, I was going to say if it's not nailed down, people will steal anything even if it is in fact attached, and that's one of the big things in the stolen catalytic, catalytic converters as well, people going in and doing that because they you know, then take them and they end up reselling them and things like that. But it's 
I guess the, the point of all this is the idea that if you, if you see these things that are going on, I don't think this is vigilantism. I think this is a recognition that people in a community should be sick and tired of being bullied by crime. And, and that's exactly what goes on. It goes back to you know one of the themes I talk about on this program all the time. Most people, honest, law-abiding. That, that's 99% of the people. But there is a 1% criminal element that just doesn't care. They don't care that, you know, what they do to you. They don't care what they do to your family. They will steal. They will cheat. They will lie. They will hurt you. It doesn't matter. And I'm a firm believer is that for for that that 1% of the hardcore criminals that are the ones that commit the crimes over and over and over again, the the only solution is at least short-term to remove them from society. Now, you hope while they're in prison, you hope that they'll, you know, see the error of their ways and decide, hey, I don't want to go back to prison, so I'm going to reform myself moving forward. You hope that's going to happen. But the, the key is getting them off the street. And the key is not allowing the rest of ourselves to be bullied by that criminal element. Again, I'm not saying to people that, here, I think that, you know, you want to go out and you want to, like, confront the, the six guys that have stolen the, the car and are sitting around there smoking dope and drinking, you know, beer out of it, and, you know, you want to confront them. But no, if you see this, hey, this is a car that is obviously stolen. I'm going to get track of the license plates. I'm going to make known that this is what's happening. And by the way, here's a photo of the people that are involved in this. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. It's a way of the community standing up and saying, we're sick of having this happen. We're sick of hearing about somebody that just opens fire on a on an apartment complex on 62nd and Silver Spring at 3.30 in the afternoon on a Saturday and fires you know 50 or 60 shots into buildings. It, unless, as a community, people start standing up and saying, we've had enough of this and we're not going to take it, well, then we shouldn't be surprised that the elected officials don't do anything about it, and we shouldn't be surprised that, okay, people who are responsible for putting the people in jail don't do their job either. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. So very glad to have you with us. Okay. I, um, a couple weeks ago, I made the decision, went and got my flu shot, which I do every year. I know some of you don't believe in that, but I, I, I'm not saying that's necessarily going to prevent the flu, but I've, every year I've gotten the flu shot. And even if I've gotten the flu, I've been less sick when I've had it. So I'm, I'm, plus, as I've said before, I don't have reactions to these things. I mean, some people I know do. Um, I also got a COVID booster. So now I've had four COVID shots. I had the the first two and then I had a booster and then I I had the latest one. So I I have now had, had four. Um, I don't have reactions to these. And and yeah, I think, I mean, this time around, it might've been a week later. And I I was just, I was running like a little bit of a low grade fever and I I didn't, I didn't feel great for just a, a little bit of time. It wasn't anything serious. And I don't know if that was because of the flu shot. I don't know if it was because of the COVID booster. Don't know if it was just maybe something I ate or something I I picked up, but it was no, no big deal. So now I, I have had that. My wife, on the other hand, I don't think she minds me saying this. She does, she does have reactions. For example, you know, she, she has reactions to shots. And and after she got the original COVID shots and got the boosters, 
there were there was a period of time where she did not feel good. And again, it's not a life-threatening sort of thing, but she had a reaction and ended up not not feeling good. And I've, I've said this before, I mean, we both had COVID, you know, and so actually I think she felt worse after having one of the reactions to the shot than she did the one time that we, you know, had COVID back in the beginning before there were vaccinations. But it, it's a decision that each person has to make as to whether they're going to continue to get the, these COVID boosters or not. So like I say, I mean, I made the decision, I, I got it, because to me it was kind of like no harm, no foul. I don't have reactions to this. But here's the interesting story, and the New York Times has this. Among seniors, the headline says, a declining interest in COVID boosters. Americans over 65 remain the demographic most likely to have received the original series of vaccinations, but fewer are getting the follow-up shot surveys indicate. And then it goes on to just talk about that, again, Americans over 65 remaining the demographic most likely to get the original um, vaccinations, like 92%. Their interest in keeping their vaccinations up to date is steadily declining, so says the CDC. To date, about 71% have received the first recommended booster, but only 44% have received the second. So what's clearly happening is as time goes on, you have more and more people who went went the, the shot route in the first place. We're going to get the vaccination, but now they're making the decision, okay, I've had the vaccination. I'm not going to get the booster, or I'm especially not going to get the second booster. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. How do you feel about this, and and where where are you? Why is it that you think that it might be, and I, I believe these numbers, why is it that you're having an increasing percentage of people particularly people who are in that, that category, which is arguably the, the most vulnerable, who are making the decision, okay, I got the first, got the first vaccinations, but I, I'm not inclined to get the booster, and I, I'm probably not, and I'm not, only less than half of the people, you know, have gotten that second booster. So what's, what's going on? Is it booster fatigue? Is it vaccination fatigue? Is it that, okay, maybe we don't think COVID is really that bad anymore? 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. Because my guess is that if it's now, if less than half of the people who are eligible for that that second booster, the, the fourth shot, if, if they've got it, they roll out another one, it's probably going to be 25%. And pretty soon you're going to get to a point where other than you have the hardcore people who get decide, okay, every time they come up with a new booster, we're going to get it. They're just making the decision that they're not getting it. So why is that happening? Open-ended question. I've got some theories, but I'm intrigued by this because, again, this is the group of people that rush to get the first vaccinations and now are making the decision, you know, a year plus later, year and a half later, nope, had enough. 855-616-1620. What's going on? We discuss in just a moment. So what are the numbers of of the of older Americans, people 65 or older, when they rolled out the first set of vaccinations, they estimate that 92% of, of people eligible got those vaccinations. Okay, so then you had the first booster, now you've got the second one. Um, and that same age group, the first booster, it's down to 71%, and the second booster, it's less than 44%. So, I mean, clearly there's there's a vaccination fatigue going on. And look, and I don't want people to be listening to this segment thinking, oh, this guy's this anti-vax guy. I'm not. I mean, I, 
I don't. I, I've had all of those. I had my first two. I had the original booster. I just a couple of weeks ago. I, I had the second one, and I just. I guess I figure for me, I don't have reactions to these. So you know what? What the heck? Better safe than sorry. But a lot of people are making a decision not to do that. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. What do you think is going on here? Let's start with. Um, we've got Gary in Michigan. Gary, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Gary. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. What do you think? What do you okay. think's going on? So I, I think the, uh, the the vaccines are being uh, less effective. Um, I, I got the vaccine, got the booster last year, got the Omicron booster this fall, went on a river cruise in Europe, and I came, both my wife and I came home with the virus. Okay. Uh, we tested positive when we got home. And it's been two weeks of hacking and coughing. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, so all of this protection, it, it's not there. Unfortunately, we came home too late to get the, like, the Paxlovid to um, right. we right. just had to suffer through. Right. So your sense is people just don't think that they, they're working as well. Um, and, okay, thanks for going. I think there's, well, there there is... Okay, there there is an element of this, and I, I when when we were first starting about the when we were first starting to talk about the the vaccines, remember the the idea it was it was initially being pushed that okay this is this is going to stop you from getting it. Well, that that quickly morphed into, and again, I'm not an anti-vax guy. It quickly morphed into if you get it, um, it's not going to stop you from getting it, especially with the new variants, but you will be less sick. Which to, to me, that that's a reason to get. It. I don't. I don't. I don't want to be sick. I don't. Don't want to end up in the hospital, you know, struggling for breath and things like that. So that's always been the justification I've had for getting it. But fewer and fewer people who've made the decision to get it are apparently, you know, making the decision to get other ones, and that's going to be a challenge moving forward. Let's talk to Sandy in Stevens Point. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. He says as he coughs. What's um, what what do you think? So what, <laughs> What do you well, think's going on? It's funny that you bring. Well, so for me personally, I, I'm going to be 62 this month. I, I hate to admit it, but I guess I fall into sort of a senior. But um, my thought is, is that when this whole COVID vaccine came about, I thought in my mind that if I got the vaccine, that it would prevent COVID. Well, it didn't. I, I got COVID, and okay, I'll give you that the the effects weren't maybe as bad as maybe they right. could have been, but I'm a healthy 62-year-old. So for me, I'm not going to get the, the booster again because I just don't think that it worked uh, for mm-hmm. me. And but I, but I will tell you that I get the flu shot every year. So, huh. but I, I really don't. Uh, I, I don't. I, I'm not going to get the COVID shot again because again. It was disappointing because I think we were all led to believe that get the vaccine, you're going to be protected, protected yeah. like we we have been with past vaccines that we all received. But I, I personally didn't yeah. think it really worked for yeah. me because I got it. So you, you think that you think that the vaccines and what they were going to do was really kind of oversold in the beginning, in other words, and that you kind of decided, okay, right. well, yeah. Well, I, mean, I, I think we all thought it, that the whole process of getting the vaccine was to prevent the COVID, and that wasn't the truth. Yeah, there, there, th- I mean, thanks for the call, Sandy. Thanks for li- there definitely was 
there, there, was, there was a pivot. And, and I understand some of the health professionals say, well, that's, that's, that's never what we, we really meant. Well, but I do remember that was kind of, I think, the impression. And, and she's right. The, the idea is with some of these things, hey, you get this particular shot, you're going to be protected, you're not going to get this. Now, again, I'm, I'm not encouraging people not to, to get the, the boosters. I, I, I myself have done that which I have to keep stressing because people say, oh, you're this anti-vax guy. No, I myself have done it. But I am intrigued with the idea that, you know, a lot of people who originally were open to getting the vaccine, especially in, in the, the more vulnerable category, the age group 65 and, and older, um, are, are making the decisions not to. I mean, it's down to less than 50% of the people as of at least the last week or two have, have gotten the various boosters that are out there. Let's talk to Bob in Wauwatosa. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi Jeff. How are you doing? Good. Well, this is I, I've give, given thousands of vaccinations in the pharmacy over the years, and this is a well-researched thing. Um, the first comes comes out, and oh my God, if we don't get this, we're going to die. And oh my God, you know everybody rushes to get them, as I did with the gene and everything. And then so um, they didn't get it, and so then they get the second one, and then they hear that uh, oh yeah, Jeff Wagner had it, but all he had was the sniffles or so and so. Oh, I don't think I'm going to take the third one. There might be some side effects, but this advertising it's just like i was telling your producer there uh if you come out with a new product called tide and you advertise it like crazy and everybody runs out and gets some tide and and then the next time you know half as many get it and the next mm-hmm. time they settle into a regular situation it's just american way american sink it's just so kind of like booster fatigue in other words yes yes hmm. do you think it's going to turn around i mean do you, or is this is this just going to be yeah, the people start dying yeah. a lot of people start dying again and you see headlines and think oh my god i didn't get the shot there's a new variation here coming through so i better run down and get the shot right no i think you're bob i think you're you're thanks i, I thanks for calling. i think you're, you're kind of spot on i think it is sort of the the booster fatigue that is out there i, I think some of the stuff might have been i agree with our callers too it might have been kind of oversold as well. And I, I understand if you talk to the medical people and say, well, we never said it was going to be a guarantee and this was going to be something that would keep you out of the hospital, which to me is a justification for, for getting the shot as well, as long as, but I, I mean, I also understand if you're one of these people that had a reaction to the shot, um, where it, it becomes a more difficult sort of balancing. If, you know, if you're sick as a dog for a couple of days after you, you got the shot and, you, you know, then it becomes a, a tougher decision. Well, gee, you know, what is the, really the risk reward of this? Let's talk to, um, let's see, Gianni in Montello. Gianni, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hey, uh, timely topic. Hey, listen, 58 years old, got the flu shot, the seasonal flu shot last week at Walmart. No issues. I do it every year. Got the COVID shot when uh, the vaccine when it came out. But we hear subsequent um, uh, issues with, with, with the, 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 the booster. They want us to take you know, one booster, and mm-hmm. then six months later, it's a second booster and a third booster, and then they want to vaccinate children. Jeff, I don't want to go full-blown cynical on your show, but how much of this is a money play? And I'm not an anti-vaxxer, believe me. I was in line to get the flu shot. Yeah. But is this is this more of a money maker? And are we really dealing with something very virulent, or is this just you know is it uh, synonymous with the seasonal flu? I mean, as far as mm-hmm. the symptoms in that. Well, so it, I, I don't want to be cynical. No, 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 no. Thank, no, I get it. The no. booster. Okay, thanks. So, well, you know, it, it's interesting because. I, I talk to my doctor. One of the things I always say is, you know, you, you talk to the doctors. I'm not a doctor, and I don't play one on the radio. But I remember 
after I'd had the, you had the first two, and then I had the third one, you know, the, the first, you know, booster that came out, and then there was another one, and, and last spring, my doctor said, well, you know, it's up to you, but, you know, there's going to be another variation that comes out in, you know, the fall, and if you were to wait for that one, which is the one I got, he said, I, I wouldn't be too critical of that. Now, again, I think what's ultimately going to happen is I think this is going to be kind of like the flu shot, and, you know, every, every year there will be like a new iteration of this that people might want to consider um, getting. Let's talk to um, Barb in Mount Pleasant. Barb, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Um, I'm kind of like you, no harm, no foul. I have a, I'm 64, and I've gotten all my boosters. My mom is 97, and she has gotten all of hers as well. Uh, and I just think yeah. it's the thing to do. And, and your mom, I see you and your mom never had adverse reactions to them? No, not yeah. at all. And um, I just think even though she is 97, I mean, she still goes out and about and the risk of her getting it. And, you know, she has yeah. other health issues. So for us, it was yeah. the right choice. And yeah. You, you get the flu shot, why not get the booster for the COVID? I I don't see any problem with getting that and I think more people should. Why do you think why do you think they're not? If the numbers I have are correct and I believe they are. I mean, go you go from 92% down to like less than 50%, is it is it just fatigue? What what do you think's going on? Why are people not doing what you and your mom I, did? I think I think possibly it's fatigue, but I also think people figure, well, I haven't gotten it, and people have that have gotten it haven't been that sick, right. and they just don't want to get it. I don't understand that, because if they're willing to go get a flu shot every year, what is the difference? Yeah. To me, I yeah. don't understand that. No, but I think at the same time, Barb, so, I mean, at the same time, you know, I, I gotta, I'll try to pull it up during the break. I mean, I'm not... I'm not sure what percentage of people in that category get the flu shot. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. My guess is that might be less right. than 50%. I don't know off the top of my head, but because I don't understand that either. I, I get the flu shot every year, and yes, there have been years that I've still got the flu, but I mean, I, I remember when I was I remember when I was younger and I didn't get the flu shot and I'd get the flu and I just first I was afraid I was going to die and then I was afraid I wasn't you know so if if I can if if, if I if I can minimize you know if I can minimize you know the the effects of that um th- thanks for the call thanks for listening and again I just think it's sort of an interesting topic and I'm not I'm not here to preach on this one way or the other that that's not what the purpose of this topic is it's just to me an interesting phenomena that are out there that. Everybody that was beating down doors to try to to get the the vaccine in the first place now, well, and I'm not saying nobody is, but but fewer and fewer people are. And my guess is that if you would look at, I was the numbers I have are just from the over 65 age bracket, you know, the, the most at risk. My guess is if you were to look at younger, you know, age brackets, pick, you know, whatever demographic you want, and you're going to find that the same thing. If it was, if if 65% of people ages 50 to 64 got it, um, now my guess is you'd have substantially less that were, you know, getting the, the fourth shot. Um, I don't know what's going on. I think booster fatigue, maybe some, you know, overselling the expectations, but it's the reality that's out there. But the, the vaccines, they are available for people who want it. 
Jeff, I tested positive with COVID once in December 2019 and just last Tuesday. Both times I suffered with bad flu, chest cold symptoms. I have had all of the original COVID and boosters. Not sure if I'm going to go get this last booster. Yeah, and, and it, I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm swamped. I mean, literally swamped with people um, on all sorts of, all, all across the map. But we're, we're talking basically to people who've had the first round of COVID boosters, but now just, just aren't sure how effective they are and just aren't willing to commit to like doing this on a regular basis. Um, you know, so, um, that's it. Jeff, my wife is a nurse who got very sick after both shots. Her employer is requiring a third. She refused and they have given her a 60 day delay. Hmm. <laughs> that's what they, they write. I, I mean, these are individual decisions that you, you have to you have to make. Like I say, for me, it's relatively easy because I don't have reactions to them. And may, maybe I'll come to regret this five years from now or 10 years from now. But that's just a decision that I made. But for other people, I understand that this is tougher. Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go now? So very glad to have you with us. Hey, a quick programming note. Uh, the final Marquette University Law School poll, to the extent that you believe polls, is going to be coming out tomorrow. Um, I think they're announcing it's uh, make the results public say at 12.15, so we'll be covering that. Um, I, I, have a, I don't know what that poll is going to show. I, I think, let me put it like this. I, I think that there is a consensus for, from people in the know that, that have access to both the internal polls that the campaigns do and some of the public ones. I, I think if you look at the Marquette poll and it show and it shows anything other than Ron Johnson ahead by three or four points and um, Michaels and Evers essentially in a dead heat, there'll, there'll be something wrong. Cause that, that's, I think really where the, the race, the race stands right now, but we'll see what the poll shows and we'll offer some commentary on that. Okay. I, because I have my teammates and my colleagues, you know, right down the hall on ESPN, who do you know great jobs analyzing the Bucks and the Brewers and all that, I, I, I don't talk about sports a lot of times, other than the fact that I am a fan. And one of the interesting things today is that this is the NFL trade deadline, um, and unlike baseball, where there, there's tends to be on like deadline day for the trades. There tends to be like a lot of trade activity. Historically, the NFL, there, there's a few trades, but there's there's not a lot. The Packers right now have been, I think, a, a huge disappointment. It would be fair to say that. They've lost four in a row, and we were kind of doing the math yesterday. It's I, I, If you look at the teams they have left to play, it's it's tough to see how they end up going from three and five now with nine games left. It's tough to see how they end up better than there's 17 games in the season this year. So it's tough to see how they end up better than like eight, and nine or seven and 10 or maybe nine and eight, but nine and eight means they've got to, you know, win, win six of their last nine games and they've got to play Philadelphia and they've got to play Dallas and they got to go to Miami and play in. And so it, it's clearly a season on the brink. I think that that would be fair to say. So, you know, one of the questions is, are, are the Packers going to make any <clears throat> any moves? Historically, they really haven't done much, you know, on, on the trade deadline. Um, and it, there's another 20 minutes or so, uh, another 20 minutes or so before the trade deadline hits. The one move apparently they were considering making is receiver named Chase Claypool, who um, played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the Packers were apparently supposedly the favorites of that. But the uh, Chicago Bears 
came in and swooped him away. They um, gave a second-round pick for Claypool, and instead of going to the Packers, he ended up going to the Bears. But other than that, you see some teams, the, the Miami Dolphins have made several trades to try to improve their team. Um, the Vikings have made some trades to try to improve their team, and it, it doesn't look like the Packers are going to do much. They might have been in on a deal or two, and who knows what can happen in the next 20 minutes, but it, it doesn't appear that there's going to be at least a, a series of, of big trades that the Packers are going to make, even if they're available, to to you know help the team for the balance of the year. It kind of looks like they have what they have. At the flip side of it, they, they apparently made the decision not to be sellers. They, they at least, unless something dramatic happens in the next you know 20 minutes, they're not going to take some of their, their players, maybe underperforming players or maybe valuable players, and, and trade them in exchange for future draft picks or something like that. Our, what I would like to discuss with you, one segment, our number, 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line, should they stay or should they go? It appears that the Packers, at least so far, are going to be content to stand pat, um, not make any sort of big move, or at least not be able to deliver on a big move. Are you happy with that? Would you have liked to have seen them just go all in, try to trade draft picks, try to trade some other players to bring in a couple playmakers that might turn the offense around? Or would you have liked them to say, okay, look, this just isn't going to be the year. We have to just retool, and maybe what we can do is get rid of a couple players that, all right, maybe it's going to hurt us a little bit this year, so we end up 7-9 and nine, or we end up 6-10 and 10, instead of 8-8. Eight and eight. We're not going anywhere anyways. Maybe we could have traded a couple people and put ourselves in a position for the future. Or are you happy with them standing pat? So that's kind of it. Should they have, you know, should they have had a lot of players, you know, go? Should they have had a lot of players stay? Should they have tried to bring in more? 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. And are you disappointed if it turns out that they, they haven't made any significant move at all over the course of the next you know 15 to 20 minutes? Are you going to be upset? We discuss in just a moment. Okay, the NFL trade deadline hits in about 15 minutes. There have been a series of deals. And again, it's um, the Vikings, and they got a defensive end. The Chicago Bears, apparently Packers were interested in in a receiver from Pittsburgh, and the uh, Bears apparently made a better deal and stole him out from under the Packers. Um, uh, The Dolphins have made a number of, of moves. San Francisco has made a series of moves. And, and it appears, and again, who knows what's going to happen in the next 15 minutes, but the, um, it, it looks like the Packers are standing pat, acting as neither a buyer nor a seller. Is, what, what's your reaction to this? Let's start with Rome in Wauwatosa. Hi, Rome. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call, Jeff. Sure. Uh, as a, I'm 68 years old, and I've been a Packer fan growing up in central Pennsylvania since I was 10 years of age. And to see where we are this year, I was I was really kind of pissed off uh, when uh, we hadn't made a move. But then the more I think about it, you know, if, in fact, uh, Sammy Watkins is going to get healthy, he could help us. But I really think that we, we blew it when we didn't pick up uh, Chase Claypool because he could have helped us, as well as uh, Jerry Judy from Denver. So mm-hmm. I really hope 
move because uh, this is a season that can be salvaged, and Rodgers is only going to be around for a little while. Thanks to call. I appreciate. It. Well, I guess I mean I guess that's the question. Can given what we've all seen when the Packers play football, and, and given where they are, and given what the schedule looks like, I mean they, they've got they've got a murderous schedule. I mean you, you've got to play the Vikings again, and admittedly that's at Lambeau. You've got to play Philadelphia. You've got to play Dallas. You've got to play Miami in Miami on Christmas Day. You've got to um, you've got to play the Rams. It's I mean, I don't know. I guess you start to look at it objectively and you say, okay, is there anything if you if you bring in one or two players, is that is that going to make the difference at, at this point in time? Can can somebody come in and really take a team that has been a disappointment and clearly doesn't have the offensive weapons, but they've got problems on special teams, they've got problems on defense. Can can they make a difference? Let's talk to Art downtown. Hi Art, you're in WTMJ. Hey Jeff. Hey, um, no, I think that uh, once again, you said eight and eight or, or six and ten, but hey, they play seventeen games now, not sixteen. <laughs> That's first off, and so you're only seven games into a seventeen-game regular season, and so, uh, sorry, eight, eight games, games yeah. into a seventeen-game, eight games in. Um, no, I think you know you got Detroit coming up, and then then the bye week, I believe, and I think you. Uh, you still got to go for it. Anytime you got Aaron Rodgers as your quarterback, and I know people are upset that he's only won one Super Bowl, or the Packers have only won one Super Bowl with Aaron as the quarterback, I don't think the time to rebuild is now. And uh, I think you got to keep going for it. I don't know what has happened to DJ Moore from Carolina, but that was another name that was out there. And there's still, what, seven, eight minutes left here. Yeah. Do so you think, we'll do you think there's happens. any, do you think that one, one or two players, uh, even if they were able to get them, do you think one or two players that might have been available would have been able to to salvage the season, to turn it around? Well, it depends on what that player brings. If you have a player that can go deep and stretch the defense, Mm -hmm. I think it opens up the other guys, the other wide receivers who don't have that ability right now. Well, you know, once again, you've got Lazard who's hurt. You've got uh, Cobb who's hurt. Um, you've got the rookie who, unfortunately, has, has he's hurt all the time. Here yeah. on, you know, he's, he's hurt all the time, yeah. and we haven't we haven't really seen what he can do. But uh, certainly, one player, um, as we saw last year with Devonte, he makes everybody better. And so, if that type of player that can stretch the defense is available, mm-hmm. and I, that's why I've said DJ Moore, who we saw catch a uh, hail mary last week to bring uh, the team back and tie the game, and then he got a stupid penalty, but. Yeah, one player can help. Two certainly would be be very helpful. But so, will uh, you be again, disappointed be if they don't do anything? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think so. But it's still, um, when these guys come back from injury, and once again, I I know it because I've been around it in a different pro professional sport. But once you get on a little streak and you get some momentum going, it's mm-hmm. such a big thing. Yeah, no, thanks. Well, I mean, I I guess I, I would look at this and and and. You may be right, and maybe there's that that one player that's out there that's going to turn this all around. But at the same time, you, you look at this, and I think I said maybe like eight nine, but I but I right. I know there's there's seventeen games, but the I mean, I, I just you look at some of the games they've lost that they should have won. You look at some of the games that are coming up on the schedule, and I'm looking. I understand that's why they play the games, but I just I, you've already lost five games. I just I'm finding it hard to see how. You know, best case scenario, 
you, you, you win more than five of those remaining games. It, so it gets you to like eight and nine or, or whatever. I, I just think, unfortunately, I think the, the Packers brass made a mistake this year in thinking that they could lose Devontae Adams and they can replace him with what they, they replaced him with. And I think that's been proven to be the, the, the case, that they couldn't do that. Um, the defense, I think, has been incredibly overrated, and that's just me as a, as a guy watching this. And for all the money they spent bringing this new special teams coach in, and it was supposed to have a new emphasis, are, are they as bad as they were last year? No, but are are they any good? Are they you know are they a top half of the NFL special teams? No, and and maybe it's a longer thing. But I do, I guess, I to answer my own question, my reaction is going to be. It's just, I think it is what it is. I guess I'm skeptical that there's anybody out there that they could find who would be available that they could bring in that would be enough of a game changer at this point in the season that they were going to, you know, suddenly be able to go on a run and win, you know, seven of the remaining nine games. I I just, I'm not sure I, I see that happening. So if that's the case, I guess my reaction is, well, okay, do you, you know, you don't want to mortgage the future by you know bringing somebody in for just a handful of games if they're not going to be able to play and you don't know how good they're going to be, I would have um, actually. I, I'm not that unhappy. I, I didn't. I I think the team is underperforming, and so I, I don't necessarily want them to become sellers and, and take all these people that they've they've built up and and just start getting rid of them. I don't think it needs that. At the same time, I guess I just look at this team and I think they're more than a player away. So. Uh, we've got nine minutes left till the deadline. Haven't seen anything yet. I'm kind of like watching the wire services and things like that. Haven't seen anything on this um, yet. And, and maybe there's some big move that's out there, but so far, you know, not being reported. Um, a lot of the teams that are really realistically who think that they might need that that one extra player to, to get them over the top you know, they're, they're making that move. And if that was the case with the Packers, I, I'd say, you know, go all in. I guess I'm just not convinced, with all due respect to some people, that I'm not convinced that they're just one player away. Jeff, if they don't do any trades, the season will be over in nine minutes. Um, Jeff, we play the Bears again, so at least one more win. Well, you know, maybe. Jeff, it's too darn late. They should have thought of this all season Long. Um, let's see. Um, Jeff, they mortgaged the future signing Aaron Rodgers. Well, I mean, I, I think they, I think they thought that Aaron Rodgers would be able to play at that same level he's played at for years and years. And objectively speaking, he's still a really good quarterback, but he's not the Aaron Rodgers he was five years ago. And you look at the, the difference between the Buffalo quarterback and what he was doing, and he was doing stuff that Aaron Rodgers did five or six years ago. Jeff, in light of the Packers season, I would say that a trade at this point would be completely emotional unless we could get Devontae Adams back. Well, that's another one. You know, you think, look, I, I understand Adams wanted out, but man, I mean, the the Oak, the Oakland, the Las Vegas Raiders are just a hot, hot mess. And I understand that he's getting paid a whole bunch of money, but you got to wonder would he, would Devontae Adams, if, you know, when you're right, when you're going to sleep, when you have that little voice that talks to you, you know, you think he would really rather been playing for a team, maybe giving him a chance to get to the Super Bowl like the Packers or playing for the hot mess that is the Las Vegas Raiders. That That's a trade that, well, the Packers might've gotten worse. The Raiders did not get better. 
Uh, one of our texters says, go Bucks, <laughs> Go Bucks, go Brewers. Well, you know, we're fans. You know, you, you want to see the, the team do well. But um, now it's seven minutes to go until 3 o'clock. Nothing coming over the wire services. Looks like the Packers are standing pat. Could be some big news, and we'll find out. 